everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. I'm Chad Grills. And in today's episode, we are joined by a man that has decades of experience in the business space, in the technology space, in the enterprise world of on-prem software as it changed over to SaaS. He's led a company through a public offering and so much more. That man is Greg Peters, the CEO of Zillion. Greg joins us today. We talk about sales, some philosophies on life, on choosing and vetting investors. We talk about culture building. We talk about ideas to foster accountability. We talk about Zillion's social contract that they created 10 years ago that they update and iterate every single year to make sure that everyone on the team is rowing in the same direction and so much more. You're gonna enjoy this interview. Let's jump into it. Today's thank you for sponsorship and world-class products and services goes out to Trinet. I'm the founder of a media business and I need all the help and organization I can get. One of the biggest problems I've faced in the past is HR. I say past because I'm not facing it anymore. I educated myself and got the team at Trinet on my side. Trinet and their expert team help us at mission with our payroll, benefits, and compliance. Trinet offers full service HR solutions tailored to your industry. So educate yourself and get the HR help you need. Whether your team is 10 people or a thousand, Trinet has you covered. Check out Trinet for your HR needs today. Hey, Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chad. Happy to be here. Well, you're calling in at, I guess, maybe the worst and best time for supply chains all around the world. There's a lot of tumult out there. So I was hoping to get your take on kind of where things are at and what you're up to at Zillion. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to happy to talk about the kind of strange world we live in right now. It sure is. I mean, that's uh, that's an understatement. And there's a lot of concern on everyone's minds. And the supply chain is something that everyone's thinking about right now, whether you're in B2B or B2C, this is something that is affects everyone. So I would love to hear from you about, you know, what you're up to and what your role is as CEO of Zillion. Be great. Love, look forward to talking. So yeah, when you describe your role at Zillion and what the company does, how do you usually describe that for people? Well, at a fundamental level, we help, we target B2B companies and we help them increase margins and, and their top line revenue through better pricing and better performance by their sales organization. An easy way to think about it is we help sales organizations figure out what products they should be selling to which customers, how much of those products could be sold based on what kind of market share that customer has, and then what price they should be selling those products at. So we sell solutions that help top line and then how to make more money off of those sales so improve margin percentage. We do it by taking data and blending data science with the software solutions that we've built to tailor these, I call it answers, you know, what products to sell and what price to be selling them out. These answers, we push those out to the sales organization so they they make better decisions. So I, I kind of think of us as being in the answer business and then building software solutions that enables salespeople to consume those answers in a really easy way. And what it allows is companies to, I mean, very appropriate in today's changing 
kind of business dynamics to adapt to changing market conditions, competitive conditions that are going on in an accelerating fashion in today's business world. That's fascinating. And yeah, I think more predictability is at the forefront of everyone's minds here of what they are kind of craving. Greg, I would love to back up for a moment and kind of talk about your origin story. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm the third son, four kids of a football coach in Little Rock. So grew up there in kind of a you know, more of a sports world than a business world, if if you would, in terms of the way my family kind of behaved and what we discussed and so forth. So when I got out of college and started to kind of start in the business world, I was really the first of my family to do that. When you were in the sports world and kind of that was your bread and butter throughout the day and what everyone was talking about and part of the culture, what were the big lessons that you took away that you feel like got you a strong start in the business world? So I played football and I was the quarterback. So through college, and I think the biggest lesson that we use the same vernacular in terms of my management team that I learned then is when you call a play, everybody's got to run the same play. You can't have half the team running, you know, a sweep left and half the team running a pass play to the right. You know, once you have your discussion, once you talk about pros and cons of what play you're going to run in business, everybody's got to be on the same page and running the same play. Otherwise, you have complete dysfunction. Wise words. And when you were first getting started in the business world, you know, you mentioned that this was kind of brand new. Nobody in your family was maybe an entrepreneur or at the forefront of the business world. What was that like for you in terms of getting to understand it and getting adjusted? Because I would imagine it would be like just, you know, a whole new world. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've spent most of my, I'm 59. So I guess uh, maybe for most of your audience, I'm an old, but I've spent, you know, almost the vast majority of my career in the software field. I began my career at Arthur Anderson, one of the public accounting firms at the time. And while there, so I have a finance background and while there started to move into the high tech space and software space, serving our clients and ultimately got involved and began working with one of my clients. And, you know, when I talk to college kids who are thinking about what field they should enter, I just urge them, don't worry about that. Go get involved in something you're interested in. Software as an industry to make a a living at didn't exist when I got out of college. So I think just having a kind of a, a lifelong learning yearning and just continue to educate yourself and pursue, you know, what interests you ultimately works out. Great advice for sure. And when you were getting into and uh, maybe getting the opportunity to be the CEO of Vignette, I'm curious to hear about, you know, how'd you uh, land that opportunity? How'd you prepare yourself? And what was that like leading the company through its public offering in 1999? Yeah. So when I became CEO of Vignette, I was CEO of another software company. I'm in Austin now in New Jersey called LogicWorks. And that was the first place I'd, I'd become a CEO, frankly. A uh, funny story. I was CFO there and 
I took the job and I moved my family from Dallas to New Jersey. And LogicWorks at the time when I joined, the CEO was on the cover of Business Week. So that's probably dating myself too. Business Week was a, a pretty large magazine at the time. Sure. But, you know, LogicWorks was one of the high flyers. And every week I was there, the forecast kept going down and the business kept deteriorating. So my timing wasn't great. And I got a call one Sunday at home from one of our board members and they said they were going to make a, a CEO change. And would I be acting CEO? And he said, we're going to do a search. If you want to put your name in the hat, feel free to do it, but we're going to do a search and we just want you to kind of keep the company going while we're doing the search. And I told him, I said, you know, I didn't move my family to New Jersey to be CEO. And I just want the company to be successful and for my stock options to be worth something. That's really my goal. So I'll do whatever I can do to support that. And so we progressed and we made some changes to the business and the, the business started performing better. And we were interviewing CEOs and we had a board meeting coming up and a couple of the board members called me to ask me to have dinner the night before. And so we're having dinner and one of them said, would you put your blankety blank name in the hat so we can get this blankety blank search over with? <laughs> and I said, okay, I will, but this is what I think we need to do. And part of that was ultimately, I, th I thought we should be looking to sell the company. So anyway, so that's what we did. One of our investors was a seed investor in Vignette. And that's actually how I got introduced to the founders of Vignette back in 1998. And then Vignette was a very strong story. And then different investor, but one of those investors was also an investor in Zillion. And that's how I got introduced to Zillion at the same time. So, you know, I would say I became CEO by accident, but then it's those connections that kind of have just moved me different places across my career. That's fascinating. It sounds like you have a track record of working, you know, with the similar investors or the same investors again and again and again, which is a great thing to keep up in business. You know, you want to take those folks with you and, you know, team up and keep those bonds going as long as possible. Any advice for people who want the same type of, you know, long-term focused relationships? I would say, one, don't burn bridges in good times and bad. And everybody has both. Hopefully you have more good than bad. And just, you know, do the right thing for the business, not necessarily always the right thing for you. There's nothing wrong with people making good personal decisions. And I tell people all the time, nobody's going to think, more about you than you. So there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, there is a, there's a bigger purpose and a, and a more common goal that investors and employees have to make something successful. And if you do that, generally good things happen. Sure. And when you were considering different investors and figuring out who to work with, what was your thought process like there? And how did you choose your investors for these companies? Uh, that's a good question. Early on, it was, so when I first became a CEO at LogicWorks, we were public. So that was more of a, a learning experience in terms of how to interact with different institutional shareholders and so forth. Vignette was my first time to work with kind of the venture capital world directly which is a, you know, a different set of, of opportunities and challenges, different time frame horizons in terms of where they think about their investment. At the end of the day, you know, business is about people, whether it's your investors or whether it's, 
you know, your employees and how you are treated and how you treat people, I think goes a long way in terms of whether or not you're going to be successful. Sure. And when you're thinking about how to treat people, you know, which is a cornerstone of culture building companies, how are you, you know, it's, it's very easy to say, you know, treat people well, but are there any stories where you either went out of your way or you had to really work hard to find out what that right answer was, right? Because it's sometimes the right answer of what to do. It's hard to figure out. So any stories about, you know, how you're making those decisions and how you're building culture? So we talk about culture and I, I like the term adult culture. That served me well over the years. And, and what I'm, I mean by that kind of in a summary fashion is if you hire really smart people, you give them a job to do, you give them the resources to do the job, and then you get out of their way and assume that people are going to act like adults and they're going to, you know, you don't micromanage people. You don't necessarily on a daily basis, for sure, tell people, you know, what to do. Get out of the way. Because what I found is that people achieve a whole lot more. If you're hiring the right type of person, they achieve a whole lot more on their own initiative than if they're being micromanaged. And then the back end of that is you hold them accountable. So there has to be accountability or you just, you know, you're just kind of playing business. So, you know, that's kind of the overriding umbrella. And I think a lot of it is set by the management team and the company. So if, at least from my perspective, you try to have your entire management team operating under that same framework, if some functional areas are in kind of have one culture and others have a different culture, then I think that really brings, breeds resentment. So we abide by something we call a the zillion social contract. And it is something that I, that we developed probably 10 years ago that we update every year that says, you know, that which I say we update at the beginning of the year, I have my entire management team. We talk about this to say, okay, as leaders, you know, what are we going to agree to? You know, we're going to agree that we're going to treat people as adults with respect, with trust, with personal accountability, We're going to communicate openly and candidly. We're going to lead by example, et cetera. Kind of a set of things like that, that as leaders that we're agreeing to. And then also conflict's inevitable, that when we come in conflict with each other, what do you do? First, you approach the person privately and you try to work things out. You engage constructively and talk about things and be honest, but assume that the person is coming from a, a place of good faith. And I guess over time, there's always going to be conflict that whether somebody feels like sales isn't doing the things that they should do or, you know, the product organization isn't working hard enough, getting enough product out, whatever it might be, that if you can enable those management, individual management members to to engage with each other in that way, I think, you know, what I've found is we have a lot less dysfunction that enables us to have greater productivity. Sure. And, you know, not necessarily at Zillion, but early on in your career or maybe at Vignette or anything like that, was there some time where, you know, you discovered, wait a minute, we're kind of playing business or wait a minute, we've kind of got this dysfunctional thing going. And how did you, you know, identify that and fix it and bounce back from it? Well, I think 
you know, probably at Vignette, which was during the, the dot-com days, I think there were a lot of businesses that were kind of playing business. I mean, in terms of any specific examples, if you go back, there were more kind of business parties, right. if you will, that were occurring at that time where people were taking VC money at really high valuations. And it was more about trying to make those management teams look like they were somebody important versus not. And we certainly took the approach, and I think it it stood up well over time, to kind of stay with, get back to basics and don't have a lot of the glitz and glamour. And I think our it came through with our investors. It came through with the performance in our stock. You know, a really easy example was our revenue recognition at the time. So this was on-prem software. This is pre-SaaS days. And, but we, we didn't recognize revenue until our customers were live. So we didn't, we didn't recognize revenue when it was sold. We recognized it, you know, whatever, 30, 60, 90 days later when our software went live. And that, in my mind, that aligned our interest directly with our customers' interest because they needed the software working. But it also gave us visibility in terms of, we knew what we sold this quarter was gonna turn into revenue next quarter. So it gave us a lot of visibility in our business. It allowed us to manage our business better. We probably, we, well, we could have recognized some revenue faster, which would have made our, our growth rates faster earlier. You know, we felt like it was the right thing to do. And it, it held up well for us in terms of the predictability of our business, which helped our stock price. We never got sued. You know, I've never been sued in, in any aspect of business, which is, you know, one of the things I'm proud of. Hey, everybody. We're taking a time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. If there's one thing I am about, and in fact, one thing the whole mission team is about, you know it's accelerated learning. One way I do that is by learning from the best. When it comes to learning about HR, the team and resources Trinet provides are my go-to source. Just this week, Trinet published a blog and webinar series to help small and medium-sized businesses manage the impact of COVID-19. It covers actions you can take to be prepared should one of your employees test positive for coronavirus. It also covers other factors you should consider, including employee compensation if your business is required to shut down due to the pandemic. There's lots happening now in real time. Go to Trinet.com and get the information you need to protect your business. Trinet will continue to post the latest as recommendations as legislation is changing on a daily basis. In terms of, you know, things that you're proud of, are there some moments at Zilliant where, you know, things were maybe a little uncertain or you had to pivot a bit? And what type of, you know, early days at Zilliant stories are you most proud of? Well, I think our solutions are kind of this new breed of data and software mixed together. And so the good news is what we sell is very measurable. So, you know, on average, if you say, okay, we can take a point of revenue and drop it to the bottom line, it is, I mean, it's very meaningful money for our customers. So that's a, there's a pro and con to that. So one is it's very measurable. People are very interested in buying it. The other side is you got to go prove it. And so we have to, on a month in, month out basis, quarter in, quarter out basis, year in, year out basis, prove what kind of value that 
we've added to their business. So the other side of that is if we're providing these answers, these prices or these leads to salespeople, but they're not acting on them, we're not going to have any impact to the business. And so adoption of these results is extremely important. And so we've set up a a customer success organization that's very different than most software organizations. If we deploy our solution, they're not being adopted by the salespeople. They're not getting business results. They're going to point the finger at us. And our customer success group works with maybe a half a dozen to a dozen customers. It's most software companies, it's probably, you know, tens to 50 to 100 customers they may be supporting. So these are very hands-on, very one-on-one. And so to be able to see some of our early prospects take data, not be successful because they don't know how to deal with their sales organization and what change management is required to help them understand these new prices that they're getting or these new leads that they're getting and what to do with them and then see them change their business and then meaningfully have a positive impact. That's probably one of the things. Um, it's really gratifying to see the change that you can see in their, in their revenue growth, in their stock price, and you know, on an individual level to see the executive sponsors who were early buyers of our solutions kind of on the forefront, the early adopters, be successful and then see their career move on because of the chance that they took and the success that the company had and to see them get more responsibility as a result of that, it's very gratifying. Sure. And with a lot of uncertainty out there in the world, whether it's things like tariffs being uncertain or, you know, relations between nation states over trade being kind of in jeopardy right now or just changing, how do you see Zillion's role as, you know, being the mediator of this uncertainty? How do you see that playing out over the next couple of years for your company? So you're right. There is a tremendous amount of change that's taking place. And as I, I mentioned earlier, so my background's financial. So I was CFO of a few software companies. And as a CFO, I always felt like, you know, I can't make every financial decision that happens in the company. They're just getting made all over the place. So I always felt like getting systems in place so you could get the right information to the right people at the right time in a way they could understand it then nine times out of 10, people will make the right decision themselves. People don't, you know, they don't wake up in the morning and go, I can't wait to go to work and make some really stupid decisions today. I mean, if people are making bad decisions that's negatively impacting your business, it's because they're not dealing with the right information. And so that's kind of the approach that we're taking to our business in terms of pricing solutions and some of our other sales solutions that is providing cross-sell and retention-based solutions. And it's extremely powerful because if you can take your data and infuse it in software that gets these answers out to people in the field like sales personnel, that gets them making decisions consistent with company strategy, you can have an extremely quick and powerful impact on your business. And you can very easily get your entire organization working consistent with your strategy. So in our situation, if in certain segments of your business, you want to grow market share or in other segments, you want to grow, you know, margin working with our software, we have a strategy interface that allows you to manipulate the data so you can push answers in different segments to the right people 
to get them acting in accordance with, with those initiatives, which obviously makes it extremely powerful. Sure. And as a company that enables better sales, I'm sure that you have your own philosophies about sales. And is there anything that you believe about sales where few of your colleagues agree with you on or, you know, where you can't figure out why more companies don't adopt those philosophies? How do you think about sales? Yeah. So we've been around, well, I mean, we've been around as a company 20 years and we have been frustratingly way ahead of the market. The adoption of these types of solutions in the B2B space has been slower than in the in the retail space or in the hospitality space. That's just a fact that companies have invested in a lot of process improvement. So whether it's ERP solutions, supply chain solutions, CRM solutions, they've done a, a lot of work to try to automate processes. And data has been a, a byproduct of that. And it's that data that is so it's kind of one of the biggest untapped assets that most companies have today that solutions like ourselves are using to drive this kind of value for our customers. So over the years, you know, I think companies have, it's taken longer for companies, I think, to get a lot of these kind of this infrastructure in place. Initially, solutions like ourselves are extremely expensive. I mean, we were initially an on-prem solution. Our average deal size was three to four million bucks if you bought our kind of suite of solutions, half software, half solutions, so the, or half services. So these were kind of big, heavy IT engagements that delivered good value, but was a lot of work to get that value. I imagine a really and long sales cycle, right? Yeah, it, very long sales cycles. Our sales organization were, you know, I call them elephant hunters. I mean, they were, you know, if they could close one one large deal a year, they could make their number. It was not a, a very high kind of grow market kind of strategy. About 10 years ago, we made the decision to move everything to SaaS to, you know, kind of going by our business quarterly and trying these Hail Mary catches where you're closing these large deals at the end of every quarter is just frankly, just no way to go through life. So we, we we made the hard decision to completely re-architect our solutions. And it took about four to five years to do that and to get all our customers that we had over to the new architecture. It was expensive. It's a whole nother podcast in terms of the, the transition from, from on-prem to, to SaaS. It affects every functional group in, inside the company from obviously on the product side to sales. You don't want elephant hunters anymore. You want, you know, want people who can be more transactional and manage more customers and prospects in their pipeline. From a services perspective, you don't want year-long plus projects now. You want to, you know, get in, get stuff up and running very quickly and get out. So you have to re, kind of restructure your entire, you know, process that your services team is working under. And even contracts, you know, you don't want 80-page contracts. You want much simpler, you know, kind of contracting process. So it affected every group inside the company. And some people can make that transition and some people can't. But we've done it. We're the only person in our space that's that's done that. And it's provided a huge platform for innovation for us now. So it's worth it. Sure. So when you're thinking about transitioning from 
larger contracts to smaller contracts, you know, you're basically like the master of, you know, figuring out pricing for companies. How are you approaching this? And when you're just talking with somebody or providing advice to a CEO who, let's say, has, you know, an average deal size that's maybe in the couple hundred thousand dollar range and they think that they want to move up to elephant territory, I'm sure every situation is different. But is there some catch-all advice that you usually provide to CEOs and executives that want to get your take on pricing? Yeah, we have a fairly structured sales process where we get data. We do some diagnostic work with that data. We interview some of the company personnel to understand what the selling environment looks like. And then from that, we can go back to the management team of a prospect and be pretty close to telling them, here's what we see as the opportunity. You know, here's where we think you can capture it the quickest, those kinds of things. And so that's our side of it. And I would say based on the work that we do and the the thoroughness of how we would approach them and the engagement and the way our services team works, that our prospects get a very strong a feeling that, you know, yeah, we can execute on what we say we're going to do. The biggest concern we found is they don't have the same confidence that they can execute on their end. Right. And that's one of the things I think, particularly in the last 12 months that we've worked with is what can we do as an organization to make them feel more comfortable that on their end, they can succeed and they can execute. We've done things like we implement what we call a solution design workshop that it has their business leaders, but also their IT to really go through at a very detailed level what is the requirement is for them, what the requirement is for us. And obviously we try to minimize whatever, you know, impact and just business disruption that's going to happen on their end. But that's helped us address kind of their side of things. That's as important, if not more important than, than our side, which we can control. We can't control them. Sure. So Greg, when you're thinking about work-life balance or integration or just, you know, living your life in general, how are you staying mentally fit and physically fit? Are you still playing any sports? What's that process like for you? Well, it you know it probably sounds like a CEO thing, but I I love golf. I do. It gets me outside. You can compete. It's really hard game. There's always a challenge on things to improve, but it gets me out of the office and it kind of is at my way of clearing my brain and just enjoying a different type of competition and you know golf's a great game you can play it for your life some of the golf courses as you travel the world are in some of the most beautiful places around the world my kids have now gotten involved it's a great way for me to to travel and spend time with my kids it's that's my outlet and it's been a really good one for me i love it and when you are thinking about learning as a ceo are you doing podcasts books are you reading things online? Is it a combination of everything? What's your learning routine like? I would say it's somewhat a combination of everything. I have recently gotten into much more podcasts. I think it's a great vehicle to get very timely information in almost every subject area you can imagine that's available, if, if not 
daily, certainly weekly. And we all spend quite a bit of time in our cars. I find it a great way to stay abreast of different, not just business, but just any interest area that you can call it up when you want it and you can pick the subject matter. It's pretty good. I like it. And are you the type that likes to you know, learn from other CEOs? Do you focus on your own organization and just, you know, having conversations and one-on-ones with your senior leaders? Where do you find like the best learning in conversations happens for you? Yeah, I think it's really important to get different perspectives. So some of that I get from my board members, but also, you know, the different boards that I have sat on over the years, just seeing how other software companies particularly are thinking about different problems. It's always eliminating and just kind of take a similar problem and see somebody else try to solve it from a a different perspective, I think is really helpful. I I think staying in your bubble is one of the more dangerous things that, that you can do. It's interesting. I was having a conversation this morning with one of my investors and board members And we were talking about some things and, you know, with the coronavirus, everyone working at home, it has been just getting outside the office more, spending more time alone, thinking about different things gives you a different perspective that I, we were talking, I think it'd be good for me to do more of, even as things start to return to normal. I think everyone's kind of rethinking their current habits and rituals and, you know, how they were living their life. And it's sparked at least here in the Bay Area, I think a, way, a whole wave of reflection, right? Because I've been talking to a lot of friends in the media space and in the tech space who are either executives running their own companies or other CEOs. And it's really, I'm very hopeful anyways, that everyone's kind of thinking about, okay, how do we better prepare ourselves and build much more of like a resilient culture at home that also supports my business? And so I kind of view this as like a reshuffling of things where we're going to get work-life integration kind of set for the, maybe the first time in in a long time. That's my optimist take on it though. Well, I'm an optimist as well. I think there'll be some really positive things come out of this. I do know, I don't think things will ever be exactly the same. There'll be some things that are fundamentally changed forever. And there'll be some different business models and there'll be some different types of companies that come out of this as there'll be some that don't come out, uh, sadly. But it's uh, whenever there's change, there's always opportunity. And uh, I think it's just important that look at the glass half full always. Always. And when you think about your career broadly, are there any lessons or stories that you maybe uh, impart to your family? You know, I know that being in business, you know, they don't want to hear about it all the time, but what are some of the most important ones that you find that you can't help but share with people close to you? You know, I just kind of goes back to a little bit of what I said earlier. I think with kids today, we pressure them so early in life on what are you going to be when you grow up? whether it's in high school or sometimes even before. Yeah. And I went to a liberal arts college and that's kind of out of vogue, if you will, right now, because it's not one of the big football factory schools. It's this Rhodes College in Memphis. So kind of a, an urban setting and the ability to communicate, whether it's orally or through the written word that I think has kind of helped 
pursue your passions and keep navigating the world. And everybody's here for a purpose in life. And if you do that, you'll find your purpose. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Greg, when you are looking to the future for Zilliant and the sales industry and, you know, maybe thinking about what comes after the current crisis and some of those opportunities, what type of future do you see out there if you look out, you know, five years, 10 years, or maybe even longer? It's a really exciting time for us. As I, I mentioned earlier, you know, we've been way ahead of the market over the last years and and all the interest and dialogue around big data and around AI is really educating B2B management teams and the board of directors for most of our our prospect companies in terms of them asking questions and what their those companies are doing. So we're an interesting company in that that respect in that we're only in the maybe the second inning. We've been around a long time, but we've only been in, we're in the second inning of this market as people are just now beginning to understand how powerful these types of solutions are. And we're an interesting company in that and generally in business, you got technology risk and you got execution risk. Well, we know our solutions work. They've worked for a long time. So there's very little technology risk. And so I tell our team, if we aren't extremely successful in the next five years, that's on us because our, our market has now formed and interest levels never been higher. And it's on us to not only execute on the sales opportunity, but to to make sure our customers are getting the value that they can drive, which will continue to drive future sales opportunities. Sure. And if there is a final call to action thought or maybe a challenge for our listeners out there who are up and coming entrepreneurs, they're executives, they're working in the industries that we're talking about today. Any final thoughts or piece of wisdom for them? I guess for new CEOs, I would pass along what, when I first became a CEO, back at that board meeting after the dinner that I mentioned earlier, one of the board members said, congratulations, you've heard the truth for the last time. And so my advice is know that there's, in every communication that you have, there's some kind of filter being applied to what you're hearing. So you have to go out and find problems and continue to ask, and, you know, be inquisitive of your employees, what's not working and address those and, and your business will be fine. I love it. Greg, thanks for being generous with your time and to everyone listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for the interest in Zillion and the opportunity. By now, you know that Trinet is our sponsor for Mission Daily you know they have amazing full-service HR solutions for your business. So what are you waiting for? When you go to trinet.com to get more information, you help support independent media like Mission Daily, and you help support our team here. And you, as a business owner or HR exec, can get top-notch service from the team at Trinet. Stop worrying about HR issues and team up with the best, Trinet. You don't have to go at it alone. Reduce your worry. You need a team, and Trinet is your go-to team for HR. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. 
It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.